The scripture lesson this morning comes from the 11th chapter of Matthew. It is uh, told, the same story is told in the Gospel of Luke with some slight differences, um, but it perhaps is not that familiar. So let's listen now for God's word to all of us today from the Gospel of Matthew. When John, that is John the Baptist, or as we Presbyterians like to call him John the Baptizer, since he wasn't a Baptist, but anyway. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts and minds to understand your world and your word this day as best we can, in Jesus' name. Amen. And prayers for whoever the sirens are responding to. May God meet their needs today as well. So a little girl, three-year-old, was sitting on her high chair after dinner. She was banging her spoon against the side of the high chair, and she was screaming at the top of her lungs, I want ice cream! Her mom was kind of frazzled, and so right as she's going off to the kitchen to get some ice cream for her screaming kid, she says, have a bit of patience. So she goes off to the kitchen, she comes back, and she sees when she gets there that her little girl seems to be in the midst of a convulsion or something like that. Her face is beat red, she's shaking all over, her fists are clenched, she even seems to have stopped breathing. And her mom cries out, what's wrong? And the little girl unclenches her fist. She stops holding her breath and she says, I'm having some patience. (laughs) Having been the uh, dad of a three-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy, I kind of know what that's like. And I know patience is not always easy, no matter what age you are. But here you all are, sitting in church on the third Sunday in the season of Advent, and I bet you've heard before, you've even heard it in the prayer this morning, that Advent is a season for waiting. We're waiting for Christmas, of course. We're also waiting 
all of us, and all of us as individuals, all of us together, we're waiting for the coming of Christ, for Christ to be real to us, to bring us joy for our own hearts and peace on earth. So patience is definitely one of the big themes of Advent. I learned this myself in a very visceral way as a, as a kid, probably, I don't know, seven years old or something like that. Um, my best friend all throughout elementary school, and you know, I'm still in touch with him today, down in San Diego, uh, after I moved there when I was seven, uh, his parents were from Germany. And Mike's parents, uh, or Mike himself, introduced to my parents the wonderful, wonderful Northern European tradition of Advent calendars. How many of you know what an Advent calendar is? Well, here, so here are some other props. I have a prop. Here is my Advent calendar for this year. You see, it's a sort of a cardboard thing, and it has these little windows that you open up for each day or each evening in the season of Advent. And you open it up, and there's a scripture passage, and a little, oh, there's a little piece of chocolate, too. And of course, would anybody like it? I guess I will patiently wait for my own dessert here. But anyway, the Advent calendar became a big, big deal in my family when I was a kid because we would open it up and, and well, I guess I'd have to wait one day and then one sister would get the candy and then another day another sister would get the candy and then I would get the candy. So what did I learn in the process? I learned the importance of patience and I also learned got a taste for the sweetness that's to come for Christmas. Now, while patience itself is not on the traditional list uh, that was, you know, come up by the Roman Catholic Church a long time ago, the list of seven virtues, patience is not on that list. The Scottish theologian George MacDonald said that the principal part of faith is patience. You hear it in the 37th Psalm, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And in Romans 12, 12, where Paul writes, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. It's all over the Bible. God is faithful in fulfilling the promises that God has made, the promises of salvation and redemption and healing and justice and joy. God is, God is faithful. But the timing for fulfillment is up to God. Can't rush it. So in the meantime, you and I have to be patient. In the words of the beautiful song from the the Taizé community in, in France, we must wait for the Lord whose day is near. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart. One of my favorite novels is Zorba the Greek by Nikos Kazantzakis. I've never seen the movie. I probably should at some point, but the novels... All of Kazantzakis' novels are fantastic. Anyway, in the novel, Zorba tells a story about how he learned patience. So he's sharing this story with us to teach us a lesson as well. 
One morning, Zorba discovered a cocoon in the bark of a tree, just as a butterfly was preparing to break a hole in that cocoon and to come out and be a butterfly. So Zorba waited, he watched for a while, and then he, he grew impatient. And so he bent over and he breathed on the cocoon. He was trying to warm it with his breath that would help to open up the cocoon, help the butterfly to get out as quickly as it possibly could. And as he says, the miracle began to happen before my eyes faster than life. And then the cocoon opened and the butterfly started slowly to crawl out. But then, to Zorba's horror, he sees that the butterfly's wings are folded back and they're all crumpled up. Its whole body was trembling as it tried to unfold its wings. And so he breathed on it again. And for a few seconds, the butterfly struggled in his hand. And then it died. It died right there in his hand. And Zorba learns an important, if painful, lesson. As he says, my breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. And that little body is, I do believe, the greatest weight I have on my conscience. For I realize today that it is a mortal sin to violate the great laws of nature. We should not hurry. We should not be impatient, but we should confidently obey the eternal rhythm. That's a lesson we could all learn from time to time, isn't it? As we go about our normal, you know, rush to fix things or figure them out or get frustrated when we don't get what we want or what we think we need right away, we all can learn that lesson. And that brings us to the scripture lesson for this morning. John the Baptist, I'll give him that name right now, John is in prison. Did you catch that? He's in prison. That's the first verse of what I just read. He's in jail because King Herod wants to chop his head off. Because John has been a pest, more than a pest. He's been seen as a public menace, as a danger for years to the powers that be. And so King Herod wants to put an end to it. Now, clearly a bunch of people really respected John. That's why he had his own disciples. That's why Jesus had gone down to get baptized by John himself. He was thought of as a great prophet by lots and lots of people. But they also saw him as kind of a weirdo. With his camel hair robe, that's why... Jesus says he's not wearing soft robes. He's wearing camel hair. He's got this scraggly appearance. And he has this really weird, strange diet of wild honey and locusts. But whatever else John is, he was certainly a man of action. Right? So it's hard to picture him sitting patiently in a cell just waiting to be executed. No, more likely he's pacing 
up and down the, the cell, muttering to himself, probably in the words of, of a psalm, maybe even Psalm 146, Happy are those whose hope is in the Lord, their God who keeps faith forever. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Praise the Lord. John pacing up and down. Because John knows his Bible, and he knows the promises <coughs> that God has given in the Bible. <coughs> he remembers Jesus, too. And he knows Jesus well because he had baptized him in the Jordan River. And remember what happens when he's baptized? A voice is heard from heaven saying, This is my Son, my Beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And now John hears that Jesus is doing some pretty amazing ministry with the poor and the lame and the sick and the outcasts up in Galilee. So he sends some of his disciples up there to check things out. And they get up there, they meet Jesus, and Jesus tells John's disciples, go back and tell him what's going on. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The wretched of the earth learn that God is on their side. Is this what you were expecting from a Messiah? Then count yourself most blessed. And just imagine how John feels, how he responds when he gets the report back from his disciples about what they've seen with Jesus. He hopes the good news is true. He hopes all this stuff is real, but he also hears it behind bars, waiting for his head to get chopped off. So yeah, it sounds like great stuff is happening with Jesus, but dear Lord, why can't it happen to me right now? In other words, the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus but it's not entirely here yet either. John knows it. You and I know it. So it's hard to be patient waiting for Christ to come back. Just before he was executed by the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his journal this. Life in a prison cell reminds me a great deal of Advent. One waits and hopes and potters about. But in the end, what we do is of little consequence, for the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. So here we are today. We're waiting. And we stand in a long line of waiters brothers and sisters in faith who have waited patiently and desperately for thousands of years for God to open the door from the outside. I mean, even as we gathered, was it last week, across the street in the park to light the, the wonderful Piedmont community Christmas tree, it was great 
But the reality is at the same time as we're gathering over there with all the lights and celebration and caroling and candy and everything else, we should know, if we don't, that we're surrounded by lots of people who are still imprisoned. Whether it's by addiction or homelessness or hopelessness or anxiety, maybe that describes some of us too. So while one of the lessons of Advent is surely about patience, it's not the only thing. In Psalm 147, we hear, Answer me quickly, O Lord, for my spirit fails. And in the very last verse of the Bible, in Revelation 22, Jesus says, Surely I will return quickly. And the response from the faithful is, come soon, Lord Jesus, soon. So the season of Advent isn't just about being patient, it's about being impatient, too. It's about being eager and expectant for the coming of the Lord. Now, of course, eagerness is compatible with patience, right? I mean... Patience keeps eagerness from becoming pathological anxiety, and eagerness keeps patience from being passive resignation. I was struck by this uh, the other day as I was studying at the etymology, the, the word origin of the word patience in English. You, you probably know that I love doing word studies when I preach. Well, I have to confess to you, even as a linguistics minor in college, I had assumed that the root of the word patience in English came from the Latin pax, or pax, pax, which means what? Peace, patience, peace. And it kind of sounds right. You know, if you're patient, you can come to a place of peace and all that. Well, to my surprise, it shouldn't have been, but to my surprise, the root of the word patience isn't pax, it's another Latin word entirely. It's pati, which means suffering. As in our word for someone who's in a hospital. To be patient means to deal with the reality of suffering. It's about endurance and fortitude, not settling for a false sense of peace or just putting on a happy face. So when we see other people, or even ourselves, are suffering needlessly or unjustly, we need to learn the virtue of impatience as well. We need to be impatient and intolerant of whatever circumstances or attitudes or laws that get in the way of human dignity, human flourishing. That is not to say it's going to be easy, even if it's urgent. So our impatience has to be tempered by an awareness of our own limitations as human beings, too. Some of you probably know the serenity prayer. That is you're commonly used by various 12-step groups. You may know it from that context, some other context. The serenity prayer the origins of that prayer come from a sermon that was given back in the 1930s 
or actually 1940s, by my favorite theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. It was in his sermon, and it originally went this way. Oh God, give us the serenity to accept what cannot be changed, the courage to change what can be changed, and the wisdom to know the one from the other. That is, in the prayer, we're asking God to help us be patient, to calmly come to grips with the reality of whatever situation we're facing. But we're also asking God for the vision to be impatient and eager for whatever opens the doors that sets people free, including ourselves. A few weeks ago, I got a really vivid illustration of how this might work. I was down at, uh, I think I mentioned this before, down at Lakeshore Avenue Baptist Church in Oakland, and I was there to observe a call-in. Call-ins are part of this broader initiative by the city of Oakland and various nonprofits including Faith in Action, which is a group that our church works with, um, to bring an end or to de deal with the scourge of gun violence that has been lasting in Oakland for so many years. So at the call-in, 20 young men between the ages of 18 and 23 have been identified by social workers and law enforcement officers as being particularly vulnerable to being either uh, the perpetrator or the victim of gun violence. And they do this once a month. And the, so these 20 guys, or however many show up, they're invited, more than invited, they are very strongly encouraged to, to attend this gathering. And they come and they sit around this large table and interspersed between them uh, for the first half hour at the table are people who are crime victims, uh, police and parole officers, an emergency room nurse, and prosecutors, both federal and local. And they listen to brief presentations by each of these representatives for the first half hour. And then the law enforcement folks leave the room, and for the second half hour, the young men get to hear from a whole range of caregivers and clergy and career counselors about tangible ways they can make positive changes in their lives and the resources that are being offered to them to help them make those changes. I have to say, I didn't know what to expect when I, when I first walked through those doors, invited as a local clergy person to observe. But what I witnessed was incredibly powerful. It was both sad and scary, and heartfelt and hopeful. It was the fruit of many long hours, even years of patient work by caring people who, if you only pay attention to the headlines or the stuff you read in the news media or see on TV, you'd assume that none of these people could ever get along to, to do anything. You know, prosecutors and police and pastors and community organizers, we're always supposed to be at loggerheads, right? No. We're working together to make tangible differences in our community, quietly, patiently, behind the scenes. 
But here are all these people together in church, brought together by a shared impatience with the suffering in their community and the vulnerability of a whole generation of young men. It made me think of something, a quote that hangs on my wall in my office by the Brazilian theologian Rubem Alves. The quote is, hope is hearing the melody of the future and faith is dancing to it today. So my prayer for you and for me and for our world this season, this Advent, with all the noise all around and inside of us, can't escape it, is that we can still listen for the music of God's promises and that we can move together to the rhythm of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.